All right, Mickey here with an advert for BetterHelp Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal, and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, innit? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. Oh God, now I have to understand how I've fucking phonetically written this. Standard issue. For all women. Hello and welcome to episode 145 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and so far this year I've run 100 miles. That's quite a lot, mate. It is. It's taken me 9 hours 20 minutes, so it must have taken the proclaimers fucking ages. <laughs> you could have come to see me. Well, maybe I'll build up to it. With that. <laughs> you could have run to see me and I'd have given you a cup of tea at a safe distance, obviously. and then you could I'd have needed back. a wee then and that's a Paula Radcliffe it. That's not actually yeah. that much more than my marathon time, Mickey, so you've done well there. <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and I'm giving a lecture later, so I've been practising my dynamic face. Um, Give us a go. Ooh, <laughs> dynamic. dynamic. I will be washing my hair, just FYI. What, during the lecture? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's what busy women do, Mick. <laughs> she can have it all. Well, speaking of having it all, I'm Jen Offord and I don't want to show off, but I have currently got four types of cheese in my fridge. That is good. What's interesting about this, Jen, is I have also counted the amount of cheese that I have in my fridge and I also have four types of cheese in my fridge and I don't consider that an extravagance. So I'm wondering, what do you think top level? What's too much cheese? Is there such thing as too much cheese? I think I once had, I think like my own personal record, like back at uh, Chateau Offord as a youth, there was always like quite a lot of types of cheese in the fridge because we were a large, you know, uh, you've heard about the cheese from the uh, cash and carry. 
But I think, like, I think in my own fridge as an adult, I think I have had, like, maybe six types in there before. Good cheese work, Jen. Yeah, thanks. I was proud of it as well. I was like, this is this is when I know that I'm doing well in life, you know? Like, six types of cheese in the fridge. It's gone all right, hasn't Just it? Just the answer to the question, what does success mean to you? Let me show you my fridge. My cheese fridge. Just a fridge I have specifically just for cheese. <laughs> I think we can all get on board. Absolutely. Later on, I chat to Jolie Brearley, founder of Pregnant Then Screwed, about her new book, Pregnant Then Screwed. So, you know, if it ain't broke. I talked to lovey Ajayi Jones about giving the middle finger to fear and her new book, The Fear Fighter Manual. In Jenny Off The Blocks, I'm talking about British gymnastics and the class action case it's facing. And at the request of the survivors, the names have been changed. Out of respect for the dead, the rest has been told exactly as it occurred, as we rate or date 1996's Fargo. But first, nanas, nationality and neutrality. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Happy to be existing in a world where Jodie Foster can give a Golden Globes acceptance speech in her pyjamas with her dog on her lap. (laughs) Lovely stuff. So, Hannah, I'd like to tell you a few stats about gender inequality, if I may. Oh, thank you. Courtesy. Yeah, thank, I thought you'd like that. Courtesy of the UN Women website. So, let's start. Less than 20% of the world's landholders are women. Women make up more than two-thirds of the world's 796 million illiterate people. The global gender pay gap is estimated at around 23%. And, according to the World Health Organisation, one-third of women who have been in a relationship have experienced physical or sexual intimate partner violence in their lifetimes. I could go on, but we would, frankly, be here all day. So some good news last week, when US toy maker Hasbro (laughs) announced that it is taking the Mr out of gender inequality. And by that I mean it is rebranding Mr Potato Head as just plain old gender-neutral Potato Head. I think it needs a mister, or, like, I, I actually think it needs it. Potato head just sounds... I saw it? David Baddiel saying something that I agree with, but let's let him say it, because he's a comedian, so he could probably say it better than me, that it's the juxtaposition of the word mister and the authority it carries with a character <laughs> called Potato Head that is what works about Mr Potato Head. I probably don't need to tell you this, but for the uninitiated, the toy was launched almost 70 years ago, and as the name suggests, it is a plastic potato with detachable masculine accessories such as a tash and a bowler hat, and his beloved Mrs Potato Head has blonde hair, glasses and a handbag like, uh, well, like me, um, mm. but, you know, like, like all women. But hold up, you dig gender stereotypical toys... Don't you worry, Ben Shapiro, you'll still be able to buy your old faves, Mr and Mrs Potato Head, but the new edition will come with a variety of accessories so you can make this newfangled tot look however you choose and create your own Potato Head family that looks just like you. Hasbro said the move was designed to promote gender equality and inclusion, which I'm sure is something we at Standard Issue can all get on board with. Hannah, how are you feeling about that gender pay gap now? It's one of these things, we talked about this with Aisha Hazarika when we did our review at the end of the year. I'm absolutely fed up, as was she, with initiatives that are designed to, in this case, you know, solve gender inequality or solve racial inequality. 
that do absolutely nothing to deal with the major problems, as you've just pointed out. And all they do is encourage people like Ben Shapiro and Tucker Carlson to point and go, this is what you wanted, feminists. And you're like, I didn't it's fucking not. care. It's really not. I don't mind if there are a man and a woman who are potatoes and they're married and she wants to take his name. I don't mind. I don't get what the deal is. I don't understand what the problem is. Yeah, no, I, I feel that it's very much um, confusing the issues, isn't it? it I do, like, I think, so one of the things that I think they're trying to do is they're trying to, so for example, make the the potato family inclusive in terms of like gay, you know, families where there are same-sex parents. There's nothing stopping people having two Mr. Potato heads. Well, exactly, exactly. Mr. Potato Head and Mrs. Potato Head are not representative of, of all male, you know, all men and women, but they're fucking potatoes. <laughs> yeah. Of course they're not. They're potatoes. They are literally potatoes. Anyway, yeah. I'm with you, Jen. Thanks. So let's talk about Shamima Begum, the young woman born in the UK to parents of Bangladeshi heritage who, aged 15, left the UK with two other schoolgirls to join IS. Begum travelled to Turkey via IS headquarters in Raqqa, where she married a Dutch recruit. She lived under IS rule for more than three years and was found nine months pregnant in a Syrian refugee camp in February 2019. That baby later died of pneumonia and Begum said she had previously lost two other children. Now, we've talked about her before on the podcast and the whole sorry story remains the same. But those few sentences at the top, the facts of her case remain a Rorschach test for people across the UK. Was she a young, innocent, groomed online who has already paid the price for her youthful stupidity? Or was she old enough to know better, giving most 15-year-olds make bad decisions, but most don't go full, I'm joining ISIS? How you feel about that is likely influencing how you react to the news that last week the Supreme Court ruled that Begum will not be allowed to return to the UK to fight her citizenship case. The court said in a unanimous ruling that her rights were not breached when she was refused permission to return, something the now 21-year-old wants to do. She wants to come back and challenge the Home Secretary's decision to remove her British nationality. She's currently in a camp controlled by armed guards in northern Syria. So, please forgive me for being a centrist fuck, but I'd like (laughs) to say that there is room for nuance here. No, never. (laughs) Did Begum do something terrible? Yes. Did she do something unforgivable? I don't know. Do I want to live in a country where there are people who will never be forgiven? I'm not sure I do. Do I think she should be punished? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Should that punishment be life in a refugee camp, a woman without a country? Again, I'm not so sure it should. Do I believe many people would be more forgiving if Begum had been white or a Christian or a man? Probably. Do I think the only reason people are celebrating this ruling is because they're sexist and Islamophobes? No, I don't believe that either. So what do I believe? (laughs) I believe that if we want to stop our children, our young women and men, being groomed into fundamentalist groups online, be that IS or far-right or anarchists, we need to understand Begum. And no part of that conversation seems to be about that. No, I mean, I think... I don't think it will surprise you to learn that I don't agree with the ruling. And also, I I, heard, I mean, I'm pretty sure that... I'm sure they have come up with a reason why it's not applicable here or, or whatever, but I thought it was illegal to make someone 
stateless. I think that's the thing that bothers me most. If you can justify making one person stateless, then surely you can justify making other people stateless in the future. And who knows what's going to happen? Well, exactly. I mean, I seem to recall the first time this came up in the news that there was some tenuous way in which they were arguing that she wasn't stateless. I don't know if that was because she was, in theory, still a Bengali citizen or Dutch or or whatever it was. But yeah, to my mind, they have made her stateless and that's illegal. And I think that our entire judicial system is built on the premise that people are, you, you know, that of rehabilitation, basically. Mm, exactly. The whole legal system stands on the fact that people can and should be rehabilitated. Can everyone be rehabilitated? If they're contrite. Um, and if she's contrite, yes. then like I say, yeah. I don't want to I don't want to be in a place where where we're like, no, no matter how contrite you are, you can never be for, forgiven. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I guess some people probably think, oh, well, if you go, yeah, sure, come back in, then that's not going to send the strong message that we don't want, you know, like if you go and join ISIS or whatever and you want to come back, just... She can still be punished in this country. She can go to jail here. That can be a punishment. Yeah. No, I agree. And and I also think that, like, kind of the whole point of, of what you were saying is that we need to learn why people are doing this. And I think that by... By saying to her, nah, nah, you're not our problem, fuck off. You know, by, by doing what we've done to her, how the fuck is that supposed to bring radicalised and disillusioned young people yeah. well, you risk, back on side? You risk making our own alien- Yeah, Exactly, and you're alienating them further. So, I, I yeah, it's it's wrong, I think. Yeah. No, you've, you've, you've demonstrated there that you are able to have that conversation without shouting and saying, you fucking idiot. So, yeah, there's no place in this conversation for you, Jen. Sorry. No place in it. I'll go and find my screaming hat and come back. Well, talking about your screaming hat, you're going to need it now, because I've got a bit of good news for you. (laughs) Well, I've not got good news for you. I've got weird news for you. Although I know we have some listeners in New York, so it is good news for them. Sort of. Maybe. Sort of. As restrictions on what we can and can't do start to be rolled back across the parts of the world that were previously locked down because of coronavirus. Restaurants in New York are now allowed 35% capacity for indoor dining. Exciting, eh? Mm. Well, in one New York eatery, Peter Luger, they've decided that maybe people don't want to sit in a two-thirds empty dining room. I mean, I've not been in a room with more than four people in it for almost a year, so a two-thirds empty restaurant sounds like one of those trains in Japan where they push the people on with the big sticks. (laughs) But at Peter Luger, they've tried to solve this perceived lack of atmosphere with, wait for it, brace yourself, waxwork models. Those infamously garrulous bastards. So that's not creepy at all, is it? Madame Tussauds waxworks of Jimmy Fallon and Don Draper can be found relaxing at empty tables and propping up the bar. Peter Luger promises it will be, and this is a direct quote, an unforgettable dining experience. And I suppose that's true. I'm not sure I'd ever forget a dead-eyed Audrey Hepburn staring at me while I tried not to spill my soup down my front. Oh, God, it's harrowing. There's a place, there's a pub, or there used to be when I was a teenager, there there was a Weatherspoons in Colchester, 
That sounds harrowing like, enough, to be exactly, honest. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't get any better than that. So it was, I think it was called The Playhouse or something like that. And as the name would suggest, it was like a sort of theatre kind of vibe. And um, I just remember sitting there one day eating my £5 burger and pint meal deal and looking up and realising that on the like upper tier there were like, waxwork models peering over it was a very very unsettling experience i I don't mind telling you Mm. well it's a shame we can't go to new york and enjoy this one jen (laughs) shudders more news next week well you have equal pay but you know they're not equal are they sexism of the week so hannah how would you describe Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala, the new head of the World Trade Organization and the first woman and first African to lead the organization? I would describe her as a woman with a deceptively easy name to pronounce. You've done a great job there. <laughs> I did practice a bit beforehand. So maybe we'd call her an economist, a Harvard graduate. One of the world's most powerful women, one of the 100 most influential people in the world, even. She has made both of those lists, just FYI. No thanks, said Swiss Daily newspaper Luzerne Zeitung, who decided to run the headline, This Grandmother Will Become the Boss of the WTO. To be clear, it wasn't the journalist who chose this headline. The newspaper confirmed in a letter apologising for the, and I quote, editorial mistake, which had sparked angry reactions. The newspaper changed Jan Dirk Herberman's headline for the first time an African woman moves to the top of the WTO. Fair play, if they'd kept it as Herberman intended, how would we know how much time the new head of the WTO was going to want to dedicate to knitting? Mm. Angry reactions it did indeed spark, not least from the head of UN Women, Humzile Malambo Nuka, UN AIDS leader Winnie Bianima, and Vera Songway, Executive Secretary of the UN Economic Commission for Africa. In a letter, they complained that the language used by the media around the appointment was offensive and, I quote, that both public and private sector leadership is dominated by ageing Caucasian men who are revered for their experience and skills they bring and never characterised by their lineage and offspring. In it... Mm. So... Some good news before we sign off, because why not? It was announced this morning, as we record on March the 1st, that thanks to the tireless campaigning of the Centre for Women's Justice alongside other organisations, that non-fatal strangulation or suffocation will become a standalone offence as part of the Domestic Abuse Bill. Hooray! all round. And we have an excellent interview coming up next week as part of our International Women's Day series between Mick and founding director of the organisation, Harriet Wistrich. And may I suggest right now that you hit subscribe to avoid missing this and all the other brilliant chats we have coming up. Agreed. None of them grandmas. Or maybe they are. We certainly won't mention if they are. I'm joined by Jaylee Brearley, founder of Pregnant and Screwed and author of the new book by the same name, Pregnant and Screwed, The Truth About the Motherhood Penalty and How to Fix It. Hello, Jaylee. Hello, Jen. You've got a book out on the 4th of March. What's it all about, Jaylee? The book is about the many artificial barriers that women face when trying to have children and a career. It's about the motherhood penalty, which is a term that we don't often use in the UK. It's quite an American term, the motherhood penalty. But it's a term that is coined by sociologists, so it's a proper term. 
and it's about the systematic disadvantages that mothers face in the workplace in terms of pay, perceived competence and benefits compared to their childless counterparts. So women often find that from the point that they get pregnant, they're sort of regularly headbutting all of these different barriers that are trying to pull them back to the kitchen sink. So this is sort of laying out what all those barriers are, why they exist, all the data that proves that these barriers exist, and then talks about how we solve them and how we can solve them. It's actually pretty straightforward, but it also gives sort of practical tips for mothers facing those barriers and how to navigate them and how to get over them. I mean, really, it's sort of about the gender pay gap, although the gender pay gap is not so much about gender at all, (laughs) in actual fact, because the difference in pay between mothers and women without children is far more than the difference in pay between men and women without children. So you cannot talk about the gender pay gap without talking about motherhood. And so we talk a lot about the gender pay gap, you know, all the time. That get, gets loads of coverage. And often motherhood doesn't even get a mention. But the key cause of the gender pay gap is motherhood. So, you know, it's really sort of looking at why that is. But hopefully in quite a funny tone, it sounds really serious, doesn't it? I'm making it sound <laughs> serious and boring. It's not like a big academic tome of a book. It's supposed to be very accessible and hopeful quite funny there's you know swearing in it and stuff so you open the book you tell your own story basically because all of this was born out of your own personal experience right your whole sort of earlier experience sounds very familiar not the um not the bit about being discriminated against by your employers because i'm fortunately employed by feminist podcasts so <laughs> they, they don't really do that <laughs> when you were younger you kind of thought you know when you're entering the the workplace that you know sexism wasn't really a thing didn't really identify with feminism and and this was kind of your your light bulb moment really getting pregnant was my light bulb moment so i was working for a children's charity i've just written in capital letters ceo children's charity woman 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 who i knew very very well i was invited to her wedding so i was working on a a fixed term year-long contract and i was running a project that i designed and i'd secured all the funding for And I was about three months into the project, had discovered I was pregnant, which wasn't planned, but that's another story. And I informed them, I was working remotely, so I sent them an email and said, look, I'm pregnant. And yes, I realized that this could be complicated, but don't worry, I've got a plan. I figured it all out. Let's have a conversation tomorrow and I talk it through with you. And the next day they called me and I didn't answer the phone because I was brushing my teeth. And they left a voicemail saying, we're pulling your contract, please hand everything over immediately. Obviously, it was because I was pregnant. There was no sign prior to that that they were unhappy with my work. It was a project that I designed, you know, and secured all the funding for, which was like a double punch in the face. I was livid, obviously livid and terrified because when you're four months pregnant, you're showing. And so I thought, nobody's going to employ me. How am I going to pay my rent? How am I going to pay my bills? And I managed to get a lawyer and they wrote the charity a letter demanding I be compensated for lost earnings. The charity just threw that letter in the bin. That process cost me £300. And when I didn't know where my next paycheck was coming from, that was terrifying. At the same time, I went for a routine hospital appointment and discovered that my cervix had almost vanished and the baby was hanging on by a thread. And they said, you could go into labour at any point and if you do, the baby will die. So they rushed me into surgery to do this 
lovely operation where they bolted my cervix together to try and keep it in place. And they said to me, whatever you do, don't get stressed because it's stress that will trigger early onset labour. And of course, I was enormously stressed. I didn't have a job and I didn't know where my money was going to come from. But I could choose to reduce that stress by not taking legal action. And you only have three months less one day to raise a tribunal claim. So I couldn't wait until Theo was born. He's now a very healthy seven-year-old boy. He was fine. And then pick the case up at a later date. So at every moment, there were just these barriers. You know, I, I was sacked because I was pregnant and then I couldn't access the justice that I so clearly deserved. And I was left in this position where I felt like my whole identity had been lost because work was so much a part of my identity and that had been pulled away from me. And then I was entirely reliant on my partner to keep me. So I, I just felt like this hollow shell of a human that was just there to grow this baby and keep it in, in position. And I had vanished. And so I, I remember lying on the sofa for weeks, just crying and in, incapable of being able to really motivate myself to do anything at all and reflecting on this this whole scenario. And eventually it was all okay. I got another job and they employed me despite the fact my uterus was swelling. They saw me for my skills and baby was fine and all of that. But it just ate away at me. It didn't stop niggling away at me that this had happened. And, you know, you've just touched upon one of the things right there, right from the beginning. The fact that you only have three months to make a tribunal claim. And if you're pregnant, like you say, you're trying to avoid stress. If you're a new mum... Again, just the, the absolute bewilderment of, of becoming a new parent. Like I'm sure some people manage it, but I know that I could not have managed to cobble mm. together something like that, you know, on, on, in those circumstances. And that's just one very basic thing where the law, you know, there, there's a barrier there immediately. You could probably spend a day telling me about other barriers women face, but, but are there any other like really obvious little kind of tweaks to the law that that would benefit women i mean in terms of accessing justice it is almost impossible so fewer than one percent of women who face pregnancy or maternity discrimination even raise a tribunal claim you know it costs a lot of money it was eight thousand pounds i was quoted to take them to mm. tribunal who the fuck has eight thousand yeah. pounds when they're about to have a baby i mean i don't know anybody that has that sort of money you can't get legal aid anymore for these kinds of cases it just doesn't exist so justice literally is only available to the elite it's only available to people that have money the three-month time limit as you say is a massive barrier but also if women then try and do something about it if they decide they are going to take legal action often they get slapped down with a non-disclosure agreement. So the employer will say to them, I will give you X sum of money and a good reference, but sign this document and it means you can never speak about this publicly ever again. Mm. And of course they do, because who wants to go through a brutal mm. tribunal process? You just want the money and you want to go and lick your wounds somewhere. But then we know that that has enormous impacts on women's mental health because they can't tell anybody what's this injustice that they face. They've got to keep it to themselves like a dirty secret. So there's a whole issue with non-disclosure agreements as well that are a massive problem. I mean, a, a key tweak that we would like to see at the moment that is being pushed through by the MP Maria Miller, but is being ignored by ministers, and you only have enhanced protection from redundancy 
when you're on maternity leave you don't have that protection when you're pregnant which is insane or when you've returned from maternity leave for six months afterwards of course it's illegal to make somebody redundant because they're pregnant but they don't say to you i'm making yeah. you redundant because you're pregnant <laughs> yeah you know the the law in the uk just doesn't work in so many different ways you don't have the proper protection you can't get the justice that you deserve when it happens so i want to talk a little bit about ndas a, a very good friend of mine was made redundant shortly after she returned from maternity leave and she was very fortunate in that her husband was in a very well-paid position so they were able to start legal proceedings and she was able to secure a settlement but as you say she was forced to sign an NDA they were a big employer one of the things that she found about the NDA as you've sort of touched on there the mental health impacts of that she has told me that she felt an element of shame attached to accepting that settlement what do we do about that other than stop people being able to buy your silence the problem is you can't stop people buying your silence because if you get rid of non-disclosure agreements you leave women in a worse position because their only access to any form of justice is a tribunal and tribunals are horrendous and you and expensive and the whole system as we've looked at doesn't work so non-disclosure agreements are better than that but they're not a good solution. So what we know of very well-known companies who win awards for their gender equality and the way they treat women in the workplace, who are held up as this beacon of morality, who behind closed doors, as soon as a woman gets pregnant, they shove her out the door, and while she's desperate and scared, they make a sign a non-disclosure agreement that says, there you go, there's a couple of grand, keep your gob shut. We know with these companies doing it, but we can't do anything about it because of these legal weapons. What we would like to see is a body, an organisation set up where you can report non-disclosure agreements to them. So if you've signed one you can say to them i was working for x company mm. and this is what happened to me and it's registered and they start tracking themes so if they see this a company come up regularly then they investigate and they slap warnings on them and perhaps it's put in the public domain but you can't just get rid of non-disclosure agreements because you leave women in a worse position without fixing the justice system you know, if you have a negative situation, such as my friend did, such as you did, such as so, so many other women have done, because, uh, yeah, I didn't know until I obviously got to a certain age where lots of people around me were having babies, that this is a very, very real thing. I know so many women who have been made redundant while they're pregnant or, or shortly after returning from maternity leave. And, and this and I actually only know one person who has spoken to me about it anyway, that um, has had any kind of financial settlement. How do you prevent the negative situation like that from becoming baggage? You need to know your legal rights. And not many women do know what they're legally entitled to. And I know that most many women believe this patriarchal notion that if they are demoted or not promoted or are pushed out of their job because they've had a baby, that they are the problem. They chose, that's the yeah. that's the line that is always used, you chose to have a baby, it's not the employer's responsibility to look after you. If you are a burden to, to a business, then you get what's coming to you. And that's not, not something women should believe. Businesses should be organised enough that they can cope with pregnancy and maternity leave. This is a fault of the business, it's not a fault of the woman. But it's also good for businesses to look after women during this period of their lives. We know that it's 
good for their bottom line. It's good for their productivity. There are loads of business benefits to looking after parents in the workplace. You must know your legal rights. And if you don't know your legal rights, then you can call our advice line and we can talk you through what your rights are. And we'll give you hopefully the confidence in order to address this situation. And actually, what we do find quite often is that if women do know their legal rights and they address this discrimination head on, often the employer backs down because they don't expect you to stand up for yourself. But also, if you, I mean, if you do get kicked out and you haven't signed a non-disclosure agreement, then contact us and talk about your story publicly because the more people willing to talk publicly about what is happening to them, the more we can elevate this and the more the government feels the pressure to do something about it. You spoke there about choice and, and one of the points of Pregnant and Screwed really is that women should have the choice. They should be able to have children and work and they should be able to balance that and they should be treated fairly in the workplace but also they shouldn't be forced into working by an unfair tax and, and benefit system and there should be help for for women who have children and we talk about choice a lot as feminists and I wondered do you think that feminism has done enough for mothers no <laughs> in summary no I think Motherhood is something that feminism has forgotten. I often see feminist events, for example, that are, I mean, this is just a small example, feminist events that are planned at bedtimes for children. And it's infuriating that we just haven't been considered. You know, I suppose second wave feminism was fighting for the option for women to be able to work, to have this notion of women can have it all. But what we've actually ended up with is women doing it all. We have children and we have jobs and we have to have jobs now to keep a roof over our heads. Both parents need to be working in the majority of cases so that families don't fall into poverty. That's the economic system that we're living in. And yet we are also doing 60% of the unpaid labour. We're still doing three times the amount of care work. Men tend to do 16 hours a week of unpaid labour. Women do 26 hours a week of unpaid labour. And then we're working on top of that. And that's the case even if women earn the most. In fact, if women earn the most money, they tend to do more of the unpaid labour as if we're trying to rebalance this situation and not emasculate men. And so really, to me, the key, some of the key things we should be fighting for are firstly paternity leave, because we need to have a system that facilitates men taking time out to care for their children. And we know they want to, 85% of dads want to spend more time with their kids, but they can't because of the way the system works. Shared parental leave is a complete nonsense. It doesn't work. 2% of dads use it. Whereas if you look at Scandinavia, if you look at Quebec, where they have ring friends, properly paid paternity leave, 90% of dads take long periods of time out to care for their children. And that reduces the care gap and it reduces the domestic labour gap. Men tend to do more of the unpaid labour if they're taking time out in those early days to care for their children. So feminism really should be working for equality in the home. And I think it's often something that is is ignored and is forgotten about. I mean, you've sort of touched on, on something that has been in the news a lot recently the pandemic uh, you know that we are currently living through has really shone a light on existing inequalities and further deepened a lot of those as well do you think 
Do you think this is going to be a force for change? Or are you worried about what happens next? I like that you laughed at that first line. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm hopeful, Jolie. Give me some hope. I, I was going to say, I love the positivity of people that try and come up with all these great things that could come out of the pandemic. When actually, I'm afraid I am really quite a lot more pessimistic. And I don't want to drag everybody down into my depths of pessimism. But there are really big problems here that we all need to be aware of. So firstly, we're looking at a generational rollback in maternal employment. More men have lost their jobs over the pandemic than women. But when you break the data down by age, between the age of 25 to 34 women, it's the highest percentage of people losing their jobs. And that's the age, of course, where yeah. women are pregnant and mm. have young children on average. So we've seen this mass exodus of women leaving the workforce. And once they're out of the workforce, once mothers are out of the workforce, it's really difficult to get them back in because we have really particular needs. We need good quality, cost-effective childcare, something we've never had in this country. We have the second most expensive childcare system in the world. And we're about to lose a quarter of our childcare providers because the government has cut funding during the pandemic rather than giving the sector more money. We need flexible working. Only 15% of jobs are advertised as flexible. We need flexible working so we can manage all our unpaid labour and our paid labour. And we need to work close to home so that we're available for the drop-offs and the pickups. So once we're out, it's really difficult for us to get back in. And if we do go back in, we tend to go in at a lower pay grade, meaning that we, we end up with less money overall. It just doesn't make any sense because it means we, we cannot economically provide for our families and we cannot contribute to the economy. So morally and economically, all of this makes absolutely no sense. What people point to when they try and be positive, uh, um, then homeworking. You know, before the pandemic, there was 5% of people working from home. During the pandemic, 50% of people working from home. And it is amazing to me that women have been calling for flexible working for decades now, been calling for more homeworking. And as soon as the men needed it, hey, we're all working from home and it was fine and it wasn't that difficult after all. What a lot of companies are talking about now that they've had a taste of homeworking is this new notion of blended forms of working, which means you can go into the office if you want or you can work from home. And we all need to be really cautious about this because what will happen is mothers will work from home so they're available for their children. Disabled people will work from home so they don't have to deal with the hellish commute. Everybody else will go into the office because it's quite nice going into the office. You get colleague camaraderie, you're away from home for a bit. And so they get to have those conversations around the water cooler that can make a massive difference in terms of promotion. They're in the meetings where the decisions are being made and it will create these new divisions within our workforce, which mean, again, mothers will experience a penalty as a result. The one positive I can draw from the pandemic is that in some families... The men have been furloughed and the women have continued to work perhaps outside of the home. And so they've had to spend more time with their children. And as a result, many of them will want to spend more time with their kids in the future. But they've also experienced all of the crappy stuff that often mothers see and men don't see. All of the screaming and the tantrums and the scraping of porridge off tables and all of that stuff that actually a lot of fathers tend to 
managed to avoid. So they have a new appreciation for the challenges mm. of the unpaid labour. I wanted to ask you a little bit about self-employment. I can't talk about self-employed people without touching on the fact that you guys recently took the government to court for the way it has calculated the self-employment income support scheme, which has included maternity leave in the calculation of the average three years earnings. Your income will have been basically a statutory maternity pay, which is about tuppence halfpenny for anyone who hasn't looked into it. You were unfortunately unsuccessful in that case, which I just can't make any sense of, of how that could not be discriminatory. But I wondered if you could tell me a little bit more about that. I'm furious about it and it's still a touchy subject. It still makes me really cross. I mean, there's lots of reasons and our, our legal team say that it's legally, many of it is legally inaccurate. We're all really upset with the fact that much of the evidence seems to have been ignored and the way that she has passed this judgment seems to just forget an entire area of discrimination. The judge feels because the eligibility is the same for everybody, then it's not discrimination. That the, the scheme had to be pulled together very quickly and then it makes sense that everybody can have equal access to one scheme and the fact that you were earning less because you were on maternity leave over the, those last three years is just about you what you were earning it doesn't matter what you were doing it's ju you were just earning less and it's in the past it's not active discrimination and so therefore it's not discrimination what that fails to address is the difference between equality and equity. Yes, everybody's equally eligible, but the discrimination is much more hidden than that because it's in the calculation method. This is such a key principle, I think, of feminism because, I mean, if you think about drug trials, for example, for centuries, drugs were trialed on male bodies and they then expected those drugs to work exactly the same on female bodies. Women are different. We, are, we menstruate, we have children, we are biologically different to men. And that theory was literally killing women. We've got to remember in, when we're pulling together schemes or anything at all, that women's experience is different to men's experience. And that judgment failed just completely failed to recognize that it's absolutely infuriating so we're looking at the moment at our options for appealing it's going to cost us a lot of money and of course there's no guarantee at all of success but we're, we're just so cross about it that we feel we can't we can't drop it well i'm sure that if our listeners want to contribute to the cost of that they can chuck you a fiver if they visit your website pregnantthenscrewed.com i guess one hopeful message is that I feel people are really angry. And I think the pandemic really has shone a magnifying glass on these inequalities to the point where we can't ignore them anymore. And we are getting messages all the time from women saying, how can I help? What can I do? I want to, I want to make this change happen. And I want to live in a better society for mothers because I understand the importance of it. And I am sick and tired of this shit. So Jolie, your book, Pregnant and Screwed, The Truth About the Motherhood Penalty and How to Fix It is available from March the 4th and is available at all good bookshops and online. You know, you guys are all over the place at the moment. You're up to so much. You, you're really, really fighting the good fight. Where can we follow you to find out what else you're up to? You can find us on Instagram, Pregnant Then Screwed, on Twitter, 
pregnant, screwed on Facebook, maternity discrimination. They wouldn't let me have pregnant and screwed. Website pregnantandscrewed.com. Jolie, thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by Lovey Ajayi Jones, award-winning author, speaker, podcast host and professional troublemaker. Her first book, I'm Judging You, was a New York Times bestseller and her latest book, The Fear Fighter Manual, is out now. Welcome to the Standard Issue podcast, Lovey. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. The last year has been absolutely terrifying for people on all sorts of levels. We are talking now the end of February. 2021 the vaccine starting to roll out trump is out of the white house do you feel less fearful for the future than perhaps you did this time last year yes less acutely fearful right because here's the thing is trump leaving the white house us getting the vaccine actually is not the full fix what we are realizing and what the pandemic really showed all of us is that a lot of our systems as they currently are are not functional or efficient or, or helpful. We find that this last year should have taught everybody a major lesson in how unprepared we are for chaos, yeah. how unprepared we are for when one thing can break. Everything broke in 2020. And we're now starting to dig our way out of it, understanding that, oh, snap, we didn't have our shit together at all. no but nobody has it's quite easy to look and sit and look at other countries I mean New Zealand seems to have things under control and Australia but nowhere in Europe really has this under control nowhere in North America really has this under control we are all a mess and I and I think you know what COVID really did was amplify anything about us that we did not have optimized it created a sense of urgency where we thought, oh, we have time to fix that or we'll get to that later. COVID was like, nope, this is urgent. This is now. The work that must be done must be done now. Are you going to actually do it? Because when you don't, people die, right? People, mm. people suffer. And now we're really being convicted to stand up to what we haven't done, to all the things we've been afraid of. When the world's biggest enemy is a microscopic virus, fear becomes really real, Mm. right? And it kind of tells us that, you know, the same fear that we use in a global pandemic is the same fear that we're walking into a meeting with when we don't want to speak up about a campaign that we know is going to go badly. Yeah, that ties into a lot of questions that I have to ask you. But I wanted to start by saying, I called you a professional troublemaker at the top. Now that's your words, not my words. Can you tell listeners what you mean by that? Mm. <laughs> That's a good noise. <laughs> so a professional troublemaker is someone who is a disruptor for the greater good. They're truth tellers, they're challengers, they ask questions. They're the people who are not okay being in a room when something unjust is happening and being silent through it. Professional troublemakers aren't people who are contrarians. They're not just haters or trolls who want to hear their own voice. They are people who feel deeply responsible for what's happening around them. And they don't just want to complain about it. They want to be a part of the solution. So we are talking about fear. And as you said there, there is a similarity between a mass 
fear and and an individual small fear. But what you're talking about in your book, The Fear Fighters Manual, you're talking about what I might describe as slow motion fears. They're not the fears that are, oh, there's a dog over there and I think it might bite me, or there's a dark alley I need to walk down. They're more long-term fears, things like embarrassment, fear of failure, fear of commitment, perhaps, fear of change. And so I wonder what it was that drew you to this topic. Fear is such a big topic and it's such a universal emotion, but we tie a lot of guilt and shame to it. Mm. And I realized that my career, my life is a testament of the moments when I have chosen courage, when I have been afraid. You know, I think about the TED talk that I did that now has 5 million views. I almost didn't do that talk. I turned it down twice because I was afraid that I was going to get on that stage and bomb. Mm. I was afraid that I wasn't ready for that stage, that I wasn't going to take full advantage of it. You know, I think fear for me has been a driver. Like it has been a driver of, of my work, of my truth, of the person that I am, because I have made an intentional decision to not let fear be the first factor in my decision-making. So that TED talk that I turned down twice because I was afraid, I was about to turn down a third time. And I called one of my friends and I said, listen, it's three weeks before TED and they're asking me to come on as a speaker. And I'm afraid I'm going to bomb because everybody else has already had a coach. Everybody else has already rehearsed their talk 15 times, I'm sure. You know, everybody else knows what they're going to talk about. And my friend, Unique, said, but everybody's not you. Your coaching has been your experience all these years as a public speaker, has been the fact that you've been on a stage every four days, Mm. you know, has been the fact that your perspective is different. That's been your coaching. So get off my phone and go write this talk. And what she did in that moment was to loan me courage when I didn't have enough for myself. In a moment when I was about to make another decision based on fear. And, you know, the TED Talk now has 5 million views. And I think about how I almost didn't do it. And that TED Talk has transformed my career, by the way. I've gotten thousands of messages from people all over the world who said, I watched your TED Talk and it made me take this action that I wasn't going to take before. Or somebody said it helped them come out of their depression. And I think about how many times have we let fear make us say no to a yes opportunity that can transform our lives? How many times have we led with anxiety and we've made it stop us from doing what we were supposed to do. How could our lives be different if we insisted on acknowledging the fear in those moments and saying, I'm going to do that thing anyway? And I think that is what compelled me to write this book because I realized this is a conversation we need to have. This is something we need to be vulnerable about. We got to talk about how fear really does acutely affect our day-to-day lives. It's not just in the moments when we see a cliff that we're like, let me not go over it because I might be physically in danger. It's in the moments when we want to say something to a friend or a colleague or a family member and we're afraid of rocking the boat or, you know, disrupting harmony. It's in the moments when we want to ask our boss for a raise and we're afraid of their no. So that's why I wanted to write this book because this is a book that I needed when I was afraid of that TED Talk. This is a book that I will need for the next big thing that I want to do. And I wanted to use myself as an example because the one thing I am an expert at 
is my own story. It's interesting because I've spoken to some people before about imposter syndrome. Yes. Particularly interesting to us because it is something that afflicts women more than it afflicts men. When you sat down to write this, what, was there an audience in mind that you were speaking to or, or would you say this is a book for absolutely everybody? I think this is a book for absolutely everybody, but I wrote this book with me in mind. Right. I think when we, you know, <laughs> in, the, in the personal is the universal. So I really honed in on how I felt when I, in the moments of imposter syndrome, how I've known other people to feel in those moments. And I knew that from there, other people will see themselves. So the imposter syndrome bit of it all, absolutely. Women are feeling it more because we live in a world that has us working extra hard to earn any spaces we find ourselves in. And then when we're there, we have to prove that we, we were worth being there. And also women in general aren't affirmed and given permission to be bold. Mm. We're expected to be the nurturers and just be fine with what you got. Meanwhile, men are allowed to be bold. You know, our boldness can be seen as aggression, as bitchiness, as bossiness. No, yeah. no. Everybody else is told, do that. All the, the men are told, do that. I'm expecting that of you. And we're told when you do it, you get punished. So I really wanted to talk to, especially a woman like me, who finds herself in rooms often and goes, oh my gosh, what do I have to do now to earn my keep? Because we haven't been told that it's actually okay to be an ambitious woman. We will feel guilt around it. We're afraid of people seeing us as too assertive. We will internalize it and use it to keep us from doing what we're supposed to do, saying that thing we're supposed to say. The thing about imposter syndrome is it is useful for one thing, is that if you have it, you will always get better at your craft because you will know that in order for you to kind of swallow down some of the guilt around it, you're like, if I am better, I will be earning my space in that room. But the bad thing about imposter syndrome is it will have you constantly overworking to earn your space in that room. It will constantly have you doubting whether you should be in there. You'll spend so much energy figuring, like questioning yourself that you won't have enough energy to do the work you're supposed to do. Obviously, it's not just being a woman, as you say. I mean, it does fall into sort of the intersection of other things. Now, for example, you are a, a woman of colour. I come from a working class background. They are also things that give you imposter syndrome. But also there's that difficult, like you say, with guilt, there is that nagging thing in the back of your mind of, if I am really successful at this, am I somehow a traitor to the background that I come from? Is that something that's going to cause the people around you to think you've got a bit up yourself or you're not the person you used to be? That is, I think, a fear as well amongst people. Yeah. Here's the thing, though. We're not supposed to be the person we used to be. Yeah, that's a very We're good not. point. We are not. I Who I am today is different from who I, I am 10 years ago, and I can't attach shame to it because who yeah. I am today has to be different from who I was 10 years ago, because otherwise I wouldn't be able to sustain my success, right? So we are afraid that people will think we've changed or that we are betraying who we used to be. But here's the thing is I'm supposed to grow. I am supposed to grow. I am supposed to change and evolve. And anybody who thinks that me changing is an affront to them is somebody who's not growing themselves. So my obligation is not to other people. My obligation is to me. And that's one of the things that is at the bottom of a lot of our fears is we're afraid of not belonging. 
We're afraid of what people will think. We're afraid of not being liked. So then we'll do all these things that don't honor us to get other people to like us. But here's the thing is, no matter what you do, people might still not like you. So you might bend yourself backwards and people still won't like you. So why do it? Yeah. Humans are fickle. You know, we should not be at the whim of other people. So if we're constantly bending to everybody's whims, we won't ever really be clear who we are, what we need to do for ourselves. Now, when I was reading your book, the cultural differences between America and the UK became very, very clear to me because everything sounds really, really simple when you say it. But I can give you the best example of this. There's a bit here where you write, we have to learn to fight fear like we'd fight a hairstylist who messed up our haircut after we told them that we, that we only wanted to cut two inches for a bob, but they went on a trim spree and you ended up with a bowl cut. Now, <laughs> what, what made me laugh about that is, I can tell you, I don't know a single woman who would complain. That's a very, very British thing to just accept the haircut that you didn't want and leave. And you got me thinking about what is it that I am afraid of complaining The last time I went to a hairdresser's, they didn't do what I asked them to do. They did something different. And I thought, what is it that stops me complaining about it? And I think it's a fear of, you know, embarrassment, a fear of getting that person in trouble, perhaps, or a fear of it turning into an awkward situation. I think added to that, there is a slight element of the word Karen doesn't mean what it used to mean. And in this country, it now just largely means a white woman complaining about stuff. But so now there's an added fear that I would be perceived as, you know, as being a Karen. So I would like to know from you, how do I complain when I don't get the haircut that I ask for? Yes. You know what's funny? That's a universal woman problem. <laughs> because you want to fight the hairstylist, but you often don't. You just go home and sit there mad that your hair is yeah. not the way you wanted it. It's a universal woman problem. And every country has this. <laughs> so... You just sit there and say, fine, I'll just take it. (laughs) You're sitting there devastated or angry because you're like, this is not what I wanted. I hate it. Yeah. And I spent money on it. (laughs) I spent money on it. And then the other person is sitting there thinking, I did great. (laughs) That was awesome. Both people lose. You know why? You lose because you spent money on a product that you did not want. And you are not feeling good about yourself in that moment. Mm -hmm. The other person loses because they did not receive the correction that could make them better for next time. That other person now will do it to somebody else. And that person also doesn't correct them. So this hairstylist who's like, oh my God, my clients love me. They're amazing. (laughs) Could have had multiple instances of opportunity to be better, to listen better, to serve their client in the way that they want. Everybody loses when that person is quiet. And that's why professional troublemaking is necessary because in telling the truth, even when you're afraid, even when you're like, ugh, I don't want to cause awkwardness, it leads often to better things. The fact, if you can say, hey, this is actually not the haircut I wanted. Remember that this is the picture I gave you. This is what I currently have. It's not what I wanted and I'm not okay with it. Could you please fix it? If that person reacts rudely and says, what do you mean? This is what I gave you. You actually learned something. You learn, maybe this is actually not the person I should be going to for my hair. Maybe this person actually does not want to be of service to me. They just want to do what they want to do, at which point I don't want to give them my money. 
maybe I, it's time for me to find the person who needs to do my hair and who will do it in a way that I love. So in the moment of you're, you're afraid of the momentary discomfort, but what this has led to now is now, are you going to go back to this person confident that they can give you what you want? We used to do live shows. And one of the questions we used to ask the women on our live shows was to say something good about themselves. And it was amazing how uncomfortable that made people. Now you have a similar trick in your book where you ask people to come up with their game of Thrones name in which they say all of their the best stuff that they could about them. I found that to be torture. What do you think it is about why, again, I would say women in particular have such a problem with singing their own praises? Because we've been told that singing your own praises is arrogant. We have been told that to be humble is the way to be. But we've been told that to be humble looks like diminishing your gifts, your qualities. But I'm I, on a really practical level. Who wins when you diminish yourself? Like who actually gains from the act of you saying, oh, I'm not good at that thing that you're actually really good at? Do you win? Do anybody else win? No. I want us to understand that, again, we've been, the systems that we're a part of have done a really good job of convincing yeah. us of things that are harmful to us. I don't have to be self-deprecating to be a good person. I don't have to be diminishing my gifts and my qualities to be humble. I can actually say to you, Hannah, I'm, I am an amazing writer and a speaker. However, that's so brilliant that you can say that. I am. I'm very clear. But let me tell you why the humility comes in. I know that I am not an amazing writer and a speaker purely of my own volition. I give credit to the teachers who helped craft my voice when I didn't even realize they were doing it. My grandmother gets props for being a woman who showed me how to be bold and allow herself to be celebrated. My mom gets props and, and, and credit for sacrificing a lot for me and my siblings that allowed me to get an amazing education. God gets credit because God gave me this gift that I honed myself. My humility is in knowing that the things that I have, the gifts that I have, the opportunities that I have are not purely from my own hard work. That's where I'm humble. But I will not sit here and then say, mm, I'm an okay writer because how is somebody else who's younger listening to this? Here's me diminishing myself. The messaging that it tells them is they must also do the same, right? And we now have generations of women who've been told, make yourself smaller for other people's comfort, just so they won't think you're arrogant. Ah, if you want to think I'm arrogant, if the worst thing you can say about me is that I'm arrogant, I'll take it. I understand why it's difficult for you to write the oriki, the hype mantra, but that's why I want to challenge people in it. That's why I want you to throw the humility that you're used to away in, for this exercise, because it's an exercise in stepping outside of your comfort zone, outside of yourself, outside of your regular pragmatism mm. and say, you know what, what is the dopest thing about me? What is the most amazing thing about me? What can I put on paper about myself that is true? Okay. It's not that it's, these are not true things. We spend so much time feeling bad about ourselves, spend so much time saying, ah, I'm not that good at that thing. So I want us to do the opposite. Write down on paper how amazing you are. Write down how your podcast is incredible. You know, talk about the things about yourself that you know to be true, that are good, that you sometimes feel shy about being good at mm. and do it without guilt and see it on paper. Yeah. 
Thank you ever so much for your time. This has been really interesting and people should definitely go out and have a read of the Fear Fighter Manual. My audacious goal with this book is to get a million people to be fear fighters. It's to get a million people to say something and have a tough conversation they might not have had before. A million people to ask for a raise that they might not have asked for before. A million people to commit to those moments of discomfort you know, and telling your hairdresser, hey, could you fix this for me? Well, that, that's what I'm going to commit to. I'm going to send you a photograph of the haircut that I actually want. When the hairdressers are finally open, I'm going to have a haircut that I actually want and I'll send yes, you a picture. Yes, and you deserve it. And I hope anybody who's listening to this understands that you being afraid is not the bad thing. That's actually fine. That's natural. You're human. You're supposed to be afraid, right? But that's the first step. Fear is the first step. Don't stop there. Because you cannot have courage without fear. Hi, Hannah again. Just popping in to say that Lovey had to shoot off at the end of that interview. So I didn't give her the opportunity to give you some details about how to find out more about her and her work if you wanted to. So here I am now to do that. Lovey's podcast is called Professional Troublemaker. And you will find that on all good podcast platforms you can find her on the socials she's on twitter at at lovey l-u-v-v-i-e and she has a website where you can find loads more about her which is lovey again l-u-v-v-i-e dot org you play ball like a girl go on do one kid jenny off the blocks Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we discuss all things women's sport. And normally I open this section with a flippant pun about the sport I'm going to discuss, but it feels like slightly the wrong tone this week, so I'm sorry for that, but also quite grateful that I don't have to think of one for once. This week it was reported that 17 former gymnasts led by London 2012 Olympian Jennifer Pinchers had filed a group claim lawsuit against British Gymnastics, the governing body responsible for all levels of the sport in Great Britain, for physical and psychological abuse against its athletes. The group claim that a win-at-all-cost mentality saw brutal treatment of children as young as six, and a letter sent to the organisation alleges that gymnasts were victims of physical violence as an act of humiliation for messing up their routines. Teenage gymnasts were also victims of a culture of body shaming and required to starve themselves in order to meet targets. Specifically, they allege that they were living on 1,000 to 1,200 calories a day, which, I don't have to tell you, is way below, in fact, half of what a normal person, as in someone who's not physically active, is supposed to consume in a day. Now, it's not uncommon in sport to have to keep an eye on the scales, but the gymnasts alleged that they were punished if targets were not met. There is so, so much more detailed in the letter of claim served by legal representatives Hausfeld and Co. LLP. A statement by Hausfeld added that the abuse was perpetuated by coaches and others employed by British gymnastics at various clubs across the UK, all of which were affiliated with the governing body. In the statement, former elite gymnast and campaign director of Gymnasts for Change, Claire Heaford, said this is not and never has been about a few bad apples. This is about decades of systemic abuse encouraged and covered up by those at the top. She added, The hopes and dreams of countless children and young adults of competing as professional gymnasts have been destroyed and their love for the sport is now shrouded in fear and suffering. And she hailed the lawsuit as a landmark moment in their campaign for justice. Pinch has added, for too long we've seen British gymnastics prioritise podiums over people, which has led to untold damage of the lives of young people. All 17 of the claimants are female. 
The governing body released a statement about the group claim stating that it would not be appropriate to make any comment until it had fully considered the claim. In response to previous allegations made against the governing body, an independent review was set up by UK Sport and Sport England last August, led by Anne White QC. In December, British Gymnastics CEO of almost a decade, Jane Allen, stepped down from her post. As Hayford suggests, these don't appear to be isolated incidents. Last month, it was revealed that a hotline set up by the NSPCC and the British Athletes Commission in July last year had received received more than 220 calls alleging abuse in British gymnastics at all levels of the sport. Abuse in gymnastics in other countries has also been well documented, for example Spain and of course in the USA. Last week it was announced that former US Olympics gymnastics coach John Gellert has taken his own life hours after 24 charges were made against him, including sexual assault of a girl between the ages of 13 and 16 and human trafficking. Gedert worked closely with the team doctor Larry Nassar, who was sentenced to 300 years in jail in 2018 for the abuse of more than 250 girls. I obviously don't have any witty comments to make about this. The story speaks for itself and clearly there's a big problem here. Perhaps until recent years we didn't really think about abuse in sport, but of course it seems glaringly obvious that in sport children are not only vulnerable because of their age and the age that they they get into sport, but also because of the unique position of trust that a coach has and the responsibility that they hold for the development of those careers. You would at least hope that lessons have been learned from these awful cases but that will be of little consolation to those who've already suffered at the hands of people who've abused their positions. Back in this country and the NSPCC hotline is due to close this month but details of it can be found on the charity's website at nspcc.org.uk. That's all from me this week and I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Mickey, which Francis McDormand vehicle were we watching this week? This week we watched Fargo. Fargo, the 1996 Coen Brothers film that is not a true story. Well, mostly not. There were two different real-life crimes that very, very, very loosely inspired Joel and Ethan Coen to write, direct and produce Fargo the movie. The first was a man who defrauded the General Motors Finance Corporation. The second was a murder in Connecticut where a man killed his wife and disposed of her body in a wood chipper. But unlike in the movie, these cases weren't connected in the slightest. Bad news for the shovel-toting people who headed to Brainerd looking for buried treasure and royally pissed off the locals after Fargo came out. Released in the US on March 8th, 1996 and in the UK on May 31st, Fargo is the Coen Brothers' sixth film and at the time their biggest hit. It struck gold at the box office and bagged the brothers an Oscar for best screenplay written directly for the screen, with another Oscar quite rightly going to Frances McDormand for her excellent turn as Marge Gunderson, but we'll get to that in the chat. Despite being the critic's darling of 1996, Fargo lost out big time to the English patient when it came to actual gongs, with a Second World War epic nabbing nine Oscars to Fargo's two. Fargo has spawned a critically acclaimed anthology series of the same name, now on its fourth season, the first three of which are on Netflix and absolutely worth your time, they're brilliant. Do you fancy a few fun facts? Yes, please. Darren Tootin! None of Fargo was filmed in the North Dakota city of Fargo, and most of the movie is actually set in Minnesota. In fact, it was originally going to be called Brainerd, but the Coen brothers decided Fargo was much cooler. The people of actual Fargo weren't quite so keen, with Mayor Bonnie Cumberland saying of the film back in 1997, It's a movie that people who don't live here seem to enjoy, but for us, it's a little bit of an embarrassment. 
Peter Stormari very almost steals the whole show despite only having 16 lines of dialogue, with none of them containing more than one coherent sentence. As his literal partner in crime, Steve Buscemi, you know, little guy, kind of funny looking. More than most, even. (laughs) (laughs) He has more than 150 lines, which is why his character Donnie in the Coen Brothers' next film, The Big Lebowski, is constantly told to shut the fuck up. In case you were confused by the credits, where the scribbled love symbol he used between 1993 and 2000 seems to suggest that Prince plays the victim in the field, Prince is not in the film. And finally, for the fun fact section, the accordion king is a real thing. Once every decade in a small Colombian village, musicians engage in a fierce battle for the title. So before I talk plot of Fargo, have you seen it before? Hannah? Yes, I've seen Fargo many, many, many times before. Jen? No, my first watch. First Fargo? Mm. First Fargo into Fargo. (laughs) I've not seen the uh, TV series either, so this is all brand new. Okay, let's look at the plot. It is a tale of bright white landscapes, pitch black humour, funny accents, brutal violence and a whole lot of breakfast food. Guileless yet utterly deceitful car salesman Jerry Lundegaard, played by an incredibly young looking William H. Macy, seriously, he kind of looks like he's been ironed, is in a financial pickle. And so he hires a couple of low-life goons, Stormari and Bashemi as Grimswood and Showalter respectively, to kidnap his wife, hold his wealthy father-in-law to ransom and split the loot. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> well, this is a Coen Brothers film and so the answer is everything. Oh, daddy. Showalter is sweaty and nervous, Grimswood silent but deadly, and while transporting the just-about-successfully kidnapped Jean Lundegaard, he kills a cop, then chases down two witnesses and executes them as well. Cue Francis McDormand, waddling onto the screen 33 minutes in, as heavily pregnant Brainerd Police Chief Marge Gunderson. Her Minnesota nice belying a razor-sharp mind as she immediately gets a handle on the situation. Unlike pretty much everyone else, as events spiral ever more out of control, leading to more bodies, some buried cash, Steve Buscemi's leg in a wood chipper, and a really nice duck painting on a stamp. So, what did people think? I mean, I have seen it many, many times before. I think it says something for the quality of the Coen brothers that I absolutely love Fargo, and it isn't even in my top five Coen brother films. Yeah, basically what I have written really big across the top of my page is Peter Stamari. And I wonder how he isn't the lead in many ways, because I think he probably has the most screen time of any character in it. As you say, he doesn't speak, but he is in it from the start to the finish, which is probably the only character in it that that goes from, from the start right until the end. And every time I watch it, I think, why does everyone talk about how great everyone else is in this? and not talk about how great Peter Stamari is. And then the minute Frances McDormand turns up, you think, oh, that's why. Because she does a real, what I would call a Mickey or a Hickey, which is turn up pretty late into proceedings and then just become the best character in it. That would be Hickey from The Iceman Cometh or Mickey from Rocky. That scene is just perfection when they're going over the, the, the crime scene. And then she just drinks that cup of tea and says, ending here with this execution deal type thing. And it's, <laughs> it will never get it will never get tired, that scene. That scene is absolutely incredible. I love the music. I think the music is just the placing of it and the sort of the sense of place that it creates is incredible. I think everybody is turning in a really, really good performance. It has a buffet full of utterly unidentifiable food, which I find <laughs> really, really enjoyable when I look at it. 
And just one other thing to add to your fun facts list. One of the Oscars that they lost out on to the English patient was Best Editing. And the editing of Coen Brothers films is always done by Roderick Jane. And had Roderick Jane actually won that Oscar, you would have known that Roderick Jane isn't a real person. It's Joel and Ethan Cohen, but they don't want their name absolutely everywhere in it. So they just made up a name and put it in there. So they would have been rumbled at that point, um, but they weren't. I'm curious to hear about Jen, though, because Jen, you haven't seen many Coen Brothers films, possibly any, I think. I have seen Coen Brothers films. I can't... The, oh, have you seen I can't the think Lebowski? which ones... I've seen that, but I haven't seen it. I've probably seen like bits of it and could probably stitch it together from the bits that I've seen. But I haven't like I just remember everyone being obsessed with it when I was in um, sixth form. Like I knew someone who smoked loads of weed who was like really obsessed with it. And that like, you still do. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. But, like, you know, he used to talk about it in the way that oh, I don't know. I can't really explain it, but it was a bit tedious, basically. Have you seen Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? No, I haven't. I've seen No Country for Old Men. That's the best one. Which is very good. Excellent. Um, but then it's got, you know, Josh Brolin and um, the man with the funny hair, Javier, Javier Bardem, in it, who are both very good, aren't they? I feel like I must have seen more than that. Have you seen Raising Arizona, which is the second best That's one? the second best one. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, uh, no. Cage. Brilliant Holly Hunter. Oh, yes. So this is when he was good, isn't it? Because people forget that he made some good films a while ago <laughs> and now he makes what does he make now stuff that we watched when you were on maternity leave yeah. yeah basically yeah so i was coming to this like completely it's completely new to me and i'm really annoyed actually because i do think i would have had like really good things to say about it but i think it was like my frame of mind maybe when i watched it i was quite tired and i found it a bit hard to concentrate on i didn't come away from it feeling like yay I loved this where like I could tell that it was funny this sounds really bizarre I don't know if this makes sense but like I could tell that it was funny but it didn't have me like laughing loads or anything like that I just I just didn't quite connect to it and I don't really know why hmm. it doesn't make me belly laugh but it consistently amuses me and it's a very very dark humor yeah I suppose it is that kind of like it's because like no country for old men from what I remember of having seen it, is a similar kind of, like, it's really, really, really dark, but there are, like, comedic things about it, which, yeah, it doesn't make you, like, roar with laughter, but it, you know, it is sort of, yeah, exactly what you just said, Mickey. I'm doing it again. <laughs> She's I'm again. doing it again. Uh, do you think you would re-watch it, then, if you were in a slightly different frame of mind? Would you revisit I think it? I, would, I think I would like to watch it again to see how I felt about it. It's like one of those things where so many people have said so many good things about it that you kind of feel instinctively that... I feel instinctively that I would have enjoyed it, but I just found it difficult to connect with. There are some films as well that are better with company. And I yeah. I bet Hannah and I, when we first watched it, didn't watch it on our own. I imagine we watched it with someone. Oh, I used to know people. Yeah, I used to be able to do stuff and go places with people. <laughs> Tell me more. Yeah. I don't understand. I it's so strange. I know. I wanted to mention that I think this is the only example, John Carroll Lynch playing uh, Francis McDormand's wife, uh, husband. Well, <laughs> okay, Freudian slip there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, possibly wife. 
And I think it's actually genuinely the only utterly sympathetic character yes. John Carroll Lynch has ever played. And it's really nice to be able to go, oh, I don't have to not trust him. I don't have to think, what is he up to in the background? It's just, he's just unadulterated nice. He's just lovely this. Norm. Um, yeah. He's painting geese and mallards. Um, yeah. This is another fun fact, and it will make you adore it even more. So apparently Francis McDormand and John Carroll Lynch came up with a backstory for their characters. And they decided that they met while they were both in the police service and then they were going to have a baby. So one of them left. And because Marge was the better cop, Norm left and it was going to be the house husband and she carried on copping. Yeah. The only thing that I find about Fargo that I'm never quite sure how it fits into it and I'm never quite sure it works is the stuff where she goes to meet her ex-friend when she's in Minnesota and I never quite feel that it gels with the rest of the film, to be honest. Yeah, I was confused by that. It's an important plot device, though, because it's the reason when she realises that she's been lied to by this guy who says, oh, he was married and his wife died and he's really lonely, mm. blah, blah, blah. She's then told that that's all bullshit. It makes her revisit the conversation she's had with Jerry, realise he probably shouldn't be taken at face value, and that's why she goes back. So it's how she kind of gets the click on it. Yeah. That's not a phrase, Mickey. No one says gets the click on it. What the fuck is that? <laughs> William H. Macy is a great actor, but Jerry Lundegaard is a terrible actor. So, um, yeah, I, I feel like she should have seen it sooner, really. It's interesting as well that the plot is very similar to the basic starting plot of Happy Valley. Yes. Mm. I don't think Sally Wainwright would mind us saying that. It's clearly been an inspiration to more than one television programme because the character played by Steve Pemberton is very much the character played by William H. Macy in this, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And also, the first series of Fargo, the TV show, it's not a carbon copy of Fargo, the film, but it bears a lot of similarities to Fargo, the film. Oh, did you end up watching it? I know you're not keen on Martin Freeman, so you skipped the first one. No, I haven't watched it, because I I really... I I watched one episode of it, and I'm not a big fan of Martin Freeman, no offence to him, but he just doesn't do it for me. And I, I, I certainly wasn't a fan of his accent. It just didn't it didn't work for me. So I haven't seen the first one, but I have obviously seen two and three. And it doesn't matter. That's Fargo is one of those few series that you can dip in at like at any point because they're not actually connected. They are kind of connected to each other, but not in a way that it would. Characters reappear. So, yeah, they yeah. are kind of connected, but not in a way that means that they don't make sense if yeah. you skipped one. But when you say it didn't make you laugh, I mean, like I say, it's not the best Cohen Brothers film. But I actually think the scene in which she interviews the two sex workers uh, yeah, and is funny. is one of the funniest things they've ever done, to be honest. Yeah. Just, the, oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and I went after, a long time after I'd seen Fargo, so actually 2008, I went to that part of the world. I went to, it was briefly in Minnesota, and then we went to South Dakota. And my brother and I uh, were standing outside. This is, I've told you this before, we got snowed in. Um, we were in South Dakota, we got snowed into a small town. My brother and I are standing outside, probably having a cigarette, possibly just standing outside because there was literally nothing to do, looking at the snow. And this U-Haul van pulled up and said, like, how do I get to here? And we were like, I couldn't tell you how you got there if there wasn't, like, six foot of snow on the roads. I certainly couldn't tell you now. And suddenly out of nowhere, a man appeared and he gave this guy, who said, the guy that was driving sounded like he'd come from the East Coast, um, and started giving this guy directions. And the guy he was giving directions to, and my brother and I were like, you could just tell everything we were suppressing was a laughter because it was straight out of Fargo. The description, the accent, the way that it took him 
45 minutes basically to give a set of directions that were basically go up to the top of the road, turn left and keep driving were amazing. So although it does seem like they amp it up, actually, weirdly, that part of the world, a lot of people do just sound like that. Well, that's where the Coen brothers are from as well. They're from Minnesota. So yeah, it's a very affectionate portrayal of what is a very funny accent, it's got to be said. Because yeah. when we did Drop Dead Gorgeous for Rated or yes. Dated, Jen was like, oh, yeah. the accent was weird. And we're like, that's how they talk. That's how yeah. people in Minnesota talk. And actually, one of the prostitutes that Hannah mentioned in that scene, which is amazing, was actually the voice coach for people learning the accent in the film. Oh, yeah. So I guess we should talk a tiny bit more about Marge Gunderson, because what a role for a woman, hey? And it was specifically written for Frances McDormand, who by that point was married to Joel Cohen. But what a brilliantly meaty role for a woman to get her teeth into, right? It's interesting because it was, at the time, a lot of fuss was made over the fact that she was pregnant. It was quite unusual to see a pregnant character in something, particularly in a role that was active. I mean, she's investigating, like, multiple murders. I think it's still considered, like, a really big talking point. Carrie Mulligan was in a BBC drama a couple of years ago where she played someone who was pregnant, also, of course, Alice Lowe's film, Prevent, she's pregnant in that, although she's pregnant in that out of necessity because Alice was pregnant. It, it's amazing to think now the amount of stuff at the time that I remember about, oh, wowzers, they've got this woman being pregnant when uh, now that doesn't seem that shocking. So, yeah, well done the Cohen brothers for doing that. Well, I think it, maybe this is just my take on it because I have recently been pregnant or, or, or whatever, but I do think it added like a... Um like a sense of jeopardy almost that wouldn't otherwise have been there so you know the end the bit at the end where she's chasing him on the snow slash possibly ice i don't know i was just watching it thinking like oh fucking hell oh god oh god like oh i hope she's gonna be all right and i don't know maybe that's just me or i don't i don't know what do you think when you first see her being pregnant it's interesting because you think it's probably going to lead to somebody, Steve Buscemi or Peter Stamari, having to make a really extra tough decision at some level because, you know, I don't think either of them would think twice about shooting a cop. And I certainly, Peter Stamari doesn't think twice about shooting a young girl that's in that car. But would he think twice about shooting someone who was pregnant? But actually, that bit of the plot doesn't ever actually arise. But I, I think that, to me, the first time I saw it, I think... Yeah, it, it kind of, she, she stood, she was kind of an an ethical question. It shouldn't be that way, but she was kind of an ethical question about, you know, it was more than her that was at risk doing this. There was, there was another life at that yeah. stage. At seven months pregnant, there's another life involved in what she does. She's sort of the moral heart of the story, isn't she? Because everything's quite bleak and grim. And even Jean Lundegaard's dad, the rich father-in-law... Even he is like, well, I do want my daughter back, but if I can keep my money as well, I'm definitely going to be trying to do that. And mm-hmm. Marge is, she's just a good person, I think. An extra fun fact, her pregnancy bump was made of bird seed, and it got so cold that one of her synthetic tits exploded. Wowzers. Uh-huh. It's, it's happened to all of us. <laughs> I'm going to ask you the question. Do you think Fargo is rated or dated? Jed? I don't feel like I can have sort of a, a fair kind of opinion on this, really, but it, I don't think it was dated, if that makes sense. I'm going to say that's a rated, Hannah. <laughs> I'm going to say it's definitely rated. And in fact, I also want to add to this that this is 1996. Train spotting was 1996. 
I have a couple of other films coming up that I picked that are 1996. 1996 was a really good year for films. What a year. Really good year. Well, I'm going to add my, oh, you betcha, yeah, to the rated. <laughs> uh, so, what are we watching next week? Is it from 1996? Jen, Sadly, tell us. It's not, is it? No, sorry. <laughs> sorry, it's not. It's from 1991. It's not actually next week, is it? It's next time. Oh, sorry, next time, yes. So you've got extra time to uh, to watch this. What a treat for you all. I hope, I hope, I haven't watched it for a really long time, so I hope it's so bad it's funny at least. But um, yeah, we're watching 1991's Chesney Hawks, A Vehicle, Buddy's Song. <laughs> I think that's that's a good time to press stop, probably on the podcast as a whole. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been great working with you. <laughs> Fucking jazz singer, come on, guys. She's got come a point, on, she's got a point. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.